This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. I'm Carl Jorn, field agronomist in Northwest Indiana, and I am joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Brian Trader. How are you, Brian? Very good. How are you this morning, Carl? I'm doing well, thank you. We are recording this edition of the Pioneer Agronomy Podcast for the great state of Indiana uh, on what is spring break week for many of you all. So for those of you that are uh, enjoying the warmer climes uh, before we get in the field and get planting here, uh, we're envious of you. And uh, for those of you that are listening to this, whenever we do decide to air it, which may not be until the month of June, depending on how spring goes, uh, I hope you had a good vacation and welcome back. Uh, so as as we get done with the time traveling here, uh, I want to get down to business. And the business of today is discussing uh, the life and times of Michael Campworth. Uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be here. Awesome. So uh, those of you that have been longtime listeners know that uh, Mike Campworth is uh, my product agronomist for the northwest portion of the state of Indiana. He also travels a little bit further uh, south of me supporting Nick Hedden uh, as well. So Nick and I get the spoils of working with uh, with Mike as he looks to uh, find the next great class of pioneer corn and, uh, and soybean products. So, uh, Mike, that's what you do, but that's not what we're here to really talk about too much today. Uh, we're continuing on our, our series of getting to know your pioneer uh, agronomist. And so that's that's why we wanted to have you on. Uh, you're going to be one of the first of our product agronomists we have a chance to do this series with. So uh, thank you for being willing to do that. And we'll start things off with uh, um, a question about who you are, how you got to where you are today. And we'll start that off with uh, Mike Campworth, where uh, on planet Earth did you enter the world? Where where was your birthplace? Well, thanks for the uh, introduction. I just want to make sure that since I'm the first agronomist being uh, interviewed, I just want to set the foundation that, uh, yes, I'm uh, better than Andrew Farrell right off the bat. So uh, I'll throw down the gauntlet there. <laughs> there it is, the first, no, the like first and the best. <laughs> no, that's great. No, Mike, I you I was just going to say you you and Andrew do have a have a fun relationship and that um, you work the most closely together out of any of your, uh, you know, bordering colleagues. But sometimes that means that you represent differing interests, uh, all for the good of the same cause, you know, and in, in northwest Indiana with the variable soils, we need a little bit of flavor from both of you. So uh, tongue in cheek, enjoy, enjoyed that remark. But uh, but go right ahead. Sh share with us, uh, you know, your childhood and, and uh, we'll take it from there. No, mine probably starts very differently than most. Uh, I come from the great row crop state of Montana, where I grew, or, where I grew up for the first 13 years of my life in southwest Montana. Um, I think uh, the only crops that I saw for, like I said, 13 years was wheat and potato fields. So lived out there for 13 years. My mom was a uh, astrophysics professor uh, at Montana Tech in Butte. And my dad uh, ran cattle and worked at a lumber yard near Bozeman. So uh, that's where I learned uh, to get into a lot of trouble that way. And um, just with the local politics and things like that, it was time for the camp wards to move back to southern Illinois, um, where my dad originally had a family farm. So uh, my mom retired from being a professor, and my dad decided that we just need to be around family. So uh, we moved back to southern Illinois. 
uh, where we helped out a little bit on the family farm and got to know there's a great world in the Midwest that is row crop, just corn and soybeans. And then the farther south you go, wheat becomes a, a lot more important. But sure. it's just there. And I was just fascinated at the different things that really corn and soybeans can do and the different varieties, the different companies, all the jockeying for business that happened, because that's all new to me at this point, you know, as a 13 year old, just getting thrown into the giant world of agriculture near Greenville, Illinois. Uh, there's not a lot much to do down there except just watch the corn mature. And then uh, sadly in 2001, uh, we had 9-11 happen right before I went into high school. And from then on, I knew that there was something I needed to do and something that uh, I felt like I could put my hand in. So as soon as I turned 17 and the recruiters uh, got their claws in me, I put my name on the dotted line and joined the Air Force. Uh, thinking I was going to be going there for uh, Russian linguistics. So I wanted to do that. And then as I started talking with the recruiters, because I joined my junior year of high school, I couldn't go in right away. Uh, started talking a little bit more with them. And they were saying, well, you're a farm kid. You know how to turn a ranch. You know how to do all these other things. Why don't you try out for some of the mechanic jobs? I think that you'd have a really good aptitude for that. So took the test and got perfect score in the mechanical aptitude test. And so the recruiter basically said, you're not going to learn Russian. You're not going to be sitting in an airplane for 48 hours at a time. You're going to go turn wrenches on a flight line. Okay. So went to basic uh, in Lackland Air Force Base, Texas. Um, most folks had summer vacation uh, after their senior year. I got to go sweat in 120 degree Texas heat in June and July. Uh, <laughs> then got to go to the the greatest place on earth after that, Wichita Falls, Texas, which is about another six hour drive north on the Oklahoma, Texas border, where I learned about the Red River, Red River rivalry over there. Yeah. So that was fun dealing with uh, Texas, Oklahoma. Was there for six months, uh, learned HVAC over there, learned uh, to be an electrician by the end of it, that you get so many different certificates uh, coming out of there for the aerospace ground equipment job that they basically call you the jack of all trades, but master of none after that. Yeah, got so, it. Okay. That's, got, that's uh, not too far flung from uh, your job as an agronomist today, right? You got to know <laughs> a little about everything, but you don't know a lot about a whole lot. So that's, uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting parallel that you draw there. So, uh, Mike, as you're earning those certificates, then, then what took place in your life? Then, uh, again, another uh, moment in history. Um, this would be the beginning of 07 now. Um, that's when they decided that to beat back some insurgencies in Iraq, we were going to send more uh, bodies to the Middle East. And so I was part of the troop surge of 07 that luckily I was there. Uh, they shipped me to Aviano Air Base, Italy, where I was there for uh, two years. Okay. But as a part of that job, we were uh, getting people to and from the states and sending them downrange. So um, I think I was 19 at the time, just getting people in, just sending them out. It was enough to make you realize that the world was a lot bigger than just you. While my friends were out there um, getting DUIs and underage drinking tickets at U of I and Purdue, uh, a lot of uh, the people in a similar situation as me that enlisted uh, were over there trying to do the good fight over in Iraq. From there, it was just, a, it was just history. You watch CNN, Fox, um, whatever your news flavor of choice is. Uh, you can just rewatch what happened um, during that time frame. 
And then there was a couple of other places uh, that they sent me to that really can't be discussed uh, too much right now after some of my uh, top secret clearances wear off or secret clearances wear off. But uh, just <laughs> a lot of fun things for a, a 20 year old, 22 year old kid to do. Um, then I realized at the time that this was something that maybe I run, run run my course and I decided that I needed to get to college. So after my two years in Italy, I needed to go back stateside and uh, they sent me to Phoenix where I was at Luke Air Force Base for the last uh, year, year and a half of my enlistment. So when I was at Phoenix, I knew I was going to go back to college. So as soon as just like every junior in high school, I was doing it all over again, applying to colleges, seeing if my ACT scores still uh, worked, if I could find all the transcripts from four years previous from my high school, applied to all the colleges that were in state because in Illinois, luckily, I didn't know this uh, while I enlisted, the state of Illinois will pay for your education so you can use your GI Bill then for your uh, miscellaneous expenses like housing and things like that. So okay. it was a nice to know that I had some income while I was in college. So applied to a lot of colleges. Uh, luckily, uh, Illinois University of Illinois accepted my application. So I got to go be one of the fighting Illini uh, the year after they got rid of the chief. So uh, <laughs> So gotta gotta have the college experience that, but there I was th thinking I was going to be a science teacher. So I knew okay. I was gonna go do science. So I was part of the School of Integrative Biology and Molecular and Cellular Biology. So kind of a, a way, a long way around of learning about genetics. But again, I was at this point, I think 22 or 24, and I had expenses beyond your normal college expense. Uh, so I decided to get myself a job, just a little part-time job working. I think they only let me work 20 hours a week. So doing something like that. And I worked for Energy Bioscience Institute, which was British Petroleum's bioenergy wing. I see. Uh-huh. Um, so there um, you're assigned to a professor that has a project because I didn't know anything about it. I was just trying to make some money and try to do it as easy as possible, get done by 6 or 7 p.m. to do homework and maybe have an adult beverage over at Legends or Murphy's or something like that. <laughs> Got it. Yep. Yep. And uh, and for for those that might be on the Illinois side of the state line, I just learned here over the last few weeks that CAMS officially got a big, big do over. And I've, I've seen CAMS as the as the Harry's of the Champaign-Urbana campus. I don't know if you can vouch for that, Mike, but that was that was disappointing news from my end. The one the one trip that I took over to uh, Champaign-Urbana uh, to watch Purdue beat University of Illinois in football. Yeah, I, I live in Urbana still, and it's still hard for me to drive by new cams knowing about the uh, uh, the opposite of honor that occurred at the previous cam site. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't think that floor was ever dry you go in there and you instantly regretted going in there. Even whenever I would go there to visit <laughs> friends, it's just, you know, you're going to have a fun time, but at the end of the night, you're going to find your way to fat sandwich and regret every decision you made. Oh, that's great. So uh, apologies for the distraction there, Mike, you're, you're regaling us about how you were uh, working within uh, British Petroleum's, uh, you know, their energy division, looking at some, what some micro microbial processes you were, you were saying. Yeah, so at first they had me uh, working with um, sustainability projects, so trying to figure out what crops we could grow 
in areas where there's not a lot of agriculture already because back then we had the renewable fuel standard debate going on if we mm -hmm. use uh, these acres for ethanol or biodiesel are we taking away food are we taking away feed for cattle and things like that so uh, i worked in a really cool lab that worked with agave so again i was in college talking about agave and it's like well there's a whole bunch of tequila that's grown out in the desert what can we do with the leftover uh, material after they squeeze all the sugars out of it. And so that was something cool that my lab was doing. Huh. Um, so that funding only went on for so long. And then they decided, hey, this kid's from Southern Illinois, three quarters of our lab that comes from Chicago or out of the country. Um, I don't think they know how to drive a tractor. Can we borrow Mike for a while and see if uh, he can help us out on the big row crop farm for a little bit and see if mm -hmm. um, they could teach my guys a thing or two. So it was, 2012 when they started getting me out there in the tractor and as you all know 2012 was the drought year one of the hottest years ever and they pulled me out from an air-conditioned lab or a greenhouse <laughs> to throw me out there in the summer that is infamously known for starting to harvest crops in august <laughs> yep gotcha gotcha and that was about the time like i said i was still learning to be a science teacher i'm going through all the classes getting all the certifications and I started really falling in love with the research aspects, um, talking with my folks. Like I said, my mom was a professor and my dad uh, came from, was a farm boy, one of 16. And as, as I start talking to them, this was the career field that both of them complained about the least. I am doing research, made my mom happy, and I'm working on a farm, doing agriculture, made my dad happy. So I'm like, you know what? This is not gonna be an argument. I can see a clear future here. This is something that I really like. So at that point, I decided that I'll do all my teaching classes, I'll get all the cert certifications that I need, and I'll have that in my back pocket. The world's always gonna need science teachers. I knew I could find a job right away. So mm -hmm. then I decided I was going to focus straight on on working for one of the big three ag companies with uh, DuPont Pioneer being one of them. Very good. So uh, Mike, you're wrapping up your studies there. You got your, you got your, um... Uh, your science teaching degree there at University of Illinois. You had your sights set on, uh, you know, uh, the beginnings of a career with one of the larger uh, corporations that's involved in agriculture. And what was that process like landing where you where you finally did stick the landing? So it was tough. And it was 2014 when I graduated. Um, a lot of cut like ag industry ramped up real big commodity prices were really high before 2014. Um, a lot of the ag companies were making investments in their people, investment in their facilities. And I think there was an overshoot on all three of these, these companies. I mean, um, I put lines in the water for all three and all three of them nibbled at one point in time. And uh, I think it was one month after my lease expired uh, at Champaign, I was living back with my parents for a month that I get a call from uh, uh, the leader of Midwest um, Product Advancement. So uh, I believe most folks on the uh, podcast are familiar with the IMPACT acronym. I don't need to spell mm -hmm. it out, or I'll just do it one time. So IMPACT stands for Intensively Managed Product Advancement and Characterization Trial. So just keep that in the back of your head. I'm gonna say IMPACT uh, quite a few times. Yeah. Uh, so the leader of Midwest Impact called and is like, uh, we see your resume and it looks uh, kind of impressive. We're um, going to see if uh, you'd like to interview. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. Midwest Impact. And it's like, but it's going to be in Western Missouri, about 
four or five hours away from where you are. Are you fine with that? I was like, I don't have a job right now. I'm going to have to make or break, uh, commit to some high schools if I wanted to just make some money. So I was like, you know what? I'll give it a try. Um, I was engaged at the time. I asked my fiance, is this something that we could do? Could we live in Western Missouri if we had to? She said yes. Um, then the rest, um, history, they uh, made me the impact lead covering three quarters of the state of Missouri. So it's someone that uh, worked in Southern Illinois where it's nothing but clay. And then going to Champaign where you got rich black topsoil for 16 feet and one of my field agronomists always says, if you grow anything less than 230 bushel corn, that's a service call. Going to Western Missouri, where you go anywhere from like Tar Heel, Missouri, where you got good, thick, black, lush soils to Joplin, Illinois, or Joplin, Missouri, where you got two inches of topsoil and growing everything yep. on 20 inch rows. It's a it's quite a varied geography. And I think, Carl, you can talk a little bit about moving out West too, how much of a shock that was. Yeah, no, you're you're spot on, Mike. As somebody that you know grew up just just where the prairie meets the timber uh, soils, uh, going all the way over to irrigated uh, sand country in central Nebraska to learn how to raise seed corn, it was yeah, it was definitely a shock. Um, yeah, a, a steep learning curve. I don't know if I ever got all the learning acquired at that point, but then Mike and I actually got to uh, cover some of those same acres as he was the impact lead, and I was uh, serving the. Missouri team, um, you know, uh, we we had some some common folks that that we got to work uh, work with and work through. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting how how you might weave a, a similar path to find your way back and and uh, back home and and working with folks that uh, you know that you you once might have shared a history with, but you maybe never even knew it type of deal. So uh, so yeah, Mike Mike and I both got to share some time in uh, in Western Missouri, and so we would have worked with uh, you know similar people, Mike. Like maybe maybe share the folks uh, that that you and I would have worked with and uh, what the nature was of your your relationship with them. So as the impact lead, we aren't part of sales directly. Uh, we're part of the research and development group. So we were based out of a little town north of Marshall, Missouri, uh, called Miami. We got a very good breeding program out of there that breeds uh, 113 to 115 type of uh, material. Um, Worked a really closely with Ryan Schmidt. He was the product agronomist for that area. And that is where I started getting introduced to the sales side of stuff. I remember a conversation I had with one of the territory managers as we were planting an impact plot. It was uh, a little bit south of Kansas City. And we were waiting for a truck to get there. So the territory manager comes out there with bottled water and some snacks. Uh, usually uh, a lot of guys will come visit the impact crew and just give him a pat on the back and say how grateful they are, come out there and work. And I remember him asking, he goes, you know, you'd be really good in sales. Uh, you have a really good personality. And I remember looking at him and then looking at my assistant, Aaron Brown, and he just had his eyes wide open. And I was like, I'm not going to be in sales. He goes, yeah, Mike's not good at talking with other people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's too fun. So for the next no, two no, years, knowing who would have, yeah, knowing who would have maybe maybe shared that comment with you, that makes it even more entertaining, Mike. But but proceed. So you and Schmidt got to know each other because uh, the impact lead works very closely with the local product agronomist. And so, uh, you know, as you were sharing that, uh, Ryan was one of the 
folks had helped me learn kind of how to evaluate hybrids as I was as I was coming through the state of Missouri too. So we we share uh, similar, I guess, characteristics in terms of appeal of of different traits as as you're evaluating uh, hybrids and and then also soybean varieties. But but that aside, Mike, uh, uh, go ahead. No, like you're saying, Schmidt is, is an excellent uh, mentor. So as I was there, kid fresh out of school, just wanted to do R&D stuff. I loved working with computers, um, doing all the an, uh, analyses that I needed to do to, to give out a finished final product to the people that can make decisions. That's what made me happy. Schmidt, on the other hand, decided that that's not what he wanted for me. Ryan decided that he needed to put somebody out there in front of him and to get somebody that he could really trust to help him make decisions. Because if you remember, we're covering three quarters of the state in a very short growing period. And you go from Joplin where they're growing 90 day corn for early corn early, all the way to some of the river bottoms to where they're growing 120 day corn mm -hmm. that they're going to plant in as soon as they can in April and start harvesting it in the middle or late September. So He's going to have his focus drawn out on a lot of different ways. He needed to help train somebody that could help make good decisions for him. And I always thought in this role, you want to adv advance the best of the best, and that's all you're looking for. You're just looking at the best. Schmidt told me it's just as important to start axing out things that don't belong. So as you're walking through the field, you see something odd about it. Maybe you're going to push that stock because not just walk past and like, oh, this doesn't look right. I'm just going to say that it doesn't belong here or I can find better. You need to justify why something doesn't work because at the end of the day, too, these are the breeders projects and they also want to know, like, what is going wrong? Why isn't this working? So we're going out there evaluating if something looks a little bit brown at the bottom of the stock, give it a little push. If it snaps right away, you can instantly say this is something that doesn't belong in this geography. In those really harsh, rugged environments of Western Missouri, you need to have some really rugged hybrids out there that are going to power through some drought years like 2012. Or in the very same geography too, three years later, you're going to have mass amounts of floods that knock out bridges. Mm -hmm. So it's it, you just need to find where are your rugged hybrids, what resiliencies, what are your tolerances, because over there, you're not just looking. 200 bushel corn is good in some areas over there, so you just want to make sure that you're providing your local growers the right product for the right acre. And that's where I really truly started to believe Pioneer's early 2010s mantra of right product, right acre, because not every product is gonna work everywhere. What's made in Iowa does not work in Southwest Missouri, Southern Illinois, Eastern Indiana, Southern Indiana. We need to have products that fit the acre. So started really feeling really good in my role and really it started clicking on all cylinders. and. Uh, this is probably three years into the role. This is where I start the uh, phase of my life where I keep failing up. <laughs> Got it. Very good. Enjoy that that corporate metaphor. So, uh, Mike, you're working out of the the Miami, Missouri location there, and uh, then all of a sudden, I get to meet you again um, as as I'm working uh, with you at the Champaign Research location. So, how did you find yourself getting back closer to home? So. Uh, interesting story is that uh, there were two open slots um, that came open at the same time, um, and one of them so happened to be Champaign, Illinois. And I was like, Champaign? There was a lot of stuff to do over there. Uh, I think I'm still in my late 20s at the time, and I was like, oh, you want it? We Mar Marshall was nice for the folks that like it, but 
there's only so much to do with the only one drinking establishment in town and all the other fast food places. So just wanted to get back home uh, somewhere closer. My wife was pregnant at the time with our first kid and wanted to be closer to family. But also we knew that Champaign, Illinois was a destination for any sort of row crop uh, uh, research. Because yeah. if you ever if you've ever been to Champaign, Illinois, um, close to the research farms, not affiliated with the University of Illinois, you have almost every single major seed and chemical company within a 10 square mile area, all doing research in one spot. Most definitely. So it's a uh, a good place for for you and the missus as you're growing your family, getting closer to home, but also a safe landing spot for uh, you know tickling your R and D interests. Um, and so you get to maintain that. Um, but then, then all of a sudden, as you said, you you, you kept uh, you know failing your way upwards in the in the world of uh, pioneer. So uh, tell us about that transition from the research side of the organization over to the uh, the commercial side of the organization. So again, in that same uh, mode of failing up, um, there was a retirement that happened. I worked for another Proctor Dronimus for four years. And during this time, he decided again, and I didn't see it in myself, that I was bound to do something more customer facing or educational. Um, so for the folks that might know Rick Lonis, and Mary Gums, they decided that I would be an interesting pick to lead uh, the product advancement for Northwestern Indiana and Eastern Illinois. Again, I said that that probably wasn't in the cards for me, but as I started working uh, on job training with both uh, Miss Gums and Mr. Lonis, uh, I got to really like it, got to start talking with uh, growers, got to really interact with them. What are their needs? It's not, what can I give the sales team that helps them uh, sell seed? It's what type of offerings do I have the option for in my impact plots that would help a grower in some situations? So not only are we advancing top yielding hybrids, but we're looking at other, other interests too, because not every acre is your high management, high yield acre. There's a lot of people with different yield goals and coming from someone from Southern Illinois, which, like I said, 200 bushel corn for me down there is still really good when farm averages are about 180. Coming up here and seeing averages of 230, 240, and then you get into other areas like I didn't know black clay existed in some um, uh, row clearance soils when you start seeing where moraines uh, stop moving south, like transitional soils near Morocco some sand soils over there near Lowell. Like these are all interesting new things that Iowa corn just really isn't going to get you the high yield uh, bump that you need. You need to find some very specific products with some very specific uh, phenotypes or physical attributes that make it thrive that environment versus something else. Definitely. So uh, in that, uh, that time span uh, from Montana, back to the family farm to Southern Illinois, then joining the Air Force, taking yourself down to Texas, over to Phoenix, back to Champaign. Um, then you arrived back to Miami, Missouri, Marshall, Missouri is where you and uh, you and Mrs. Campworth lived. And then back to Champaign, you guys have, 
you've uh, you've put your your boots over a lot a lot of different types of ground, Mike. Um, and now you get to work uh, every day in uh, in Northwest Indiana, also supporting the Eastern Illinois team. Um, so you you've had a diverse experience uh, compared to a lot of other folks that you know maybe they just know their own um, you know their their own backyard. How do you think that that benefits you as you're evaluating products and trying to figure out what's going to be the right fit for the right acre? I think the most important thing about that is that you can't just go into a situation assuming you know everything right away. That ground has a specific history. Your growers have a very specific history. And maybe some of the allied partners of that grower have a very uh, specific history. So being able to piece together different information with some of the experience that I've had in the past, I think allows me to see things in a different way that maybe some other uh folks don't see it or maybe even a computer algorithm doesn't see because I know the way that the industry is moving now we're seeing a lot more technology take the place of what used to be human common sense yep. but in the, at the end of the day I think you still need to have somebody out there that's willing to ask maybe I wouldn't say an odd question but just a very in, a unique question that maybe trips the switch for example I remember going out to a grower and he's had corn on corn for a while and does everything right and he keeps saying like i wish i could just get these stocks to just degrade like you just have to put my trash rippers down so many times to get these stocks out of the way and he was a uh, newer farmer he just uh, inherited the ground from his folks and i asked him what his management practices were and he was one of the initial adopters of spring fungicide every year and mm -hmm. i asked him i was like do you think possibly that maybe your very aggressive stance to fungicide on corn on corn acres is something that maybe is not letting your stocks degrade. And so he decided he was going to try it out and maybe not uh, spray so heavily, maybe every other year in some spots and come to find out that that was maybe one of the solutions was making sure that if you are trying to get rid of some of your high residue, that some of these really, uh, technological advances that we've been going through maybe isn't conducive to some environments to where you're trying to manage stock, till the stocks under, just trying to degrade your previous year's uh, biomass to make ready for the new crop, you know, like, I think that is something that a computer would never pick up. Absolutely. No, I think that's something we'll continue to see uh, as we're, you know, uh, as an industry, as farmers are, we're tasked with continuing to grow more bushels per acre as opposed to farming more acres. Uh, how how one is going to manage that residue is going to be a, a huge component to management outside of just what do we do with the living crop, but what do we do with what it leaves behind? I think that's a, it's, it's a prudent point to, to raise. Uh, so, Mike, we, we learned a lot about your your work history. Share, share a little bit more about what the family life looks like today. Um, I know there's there's a lot that stands behind you when you walk out the door every every morning. Uh, I know maybe it's not to the tune of the 16 kids that your dad grew up with, but uh, what does the Campworth clan look like today? So uh, the Champagne clan of Campworths um, uh, have uh, married to my wife, uh, Amanda. And we have two little girls, Sylvia, age five. Uh, she's in kindergarten and Lucy, age one. So it is a, a very loud house. Um, growing up, I had a brother and a sister and there was always NASCARs, tanks, fighter planes, transformers. <laughs> That's how I grew up. And so with uh, two little girls, it's 
ponies, princesses, um, Disney princesses are probably a mainstay once a day on our uh, TV. Um, just a lot of that and making sure hair's combed and things that uh, I didn't necessarily grow up with. It just really makes you appreciate uh, the other side of the fence and just how special uh, being a girl dad can be. No, that's great. Uh, so, Mike, when you're not spending time uh, with your two princesses and the queen of the castle, uh, what what do you like to do uh, in terms of hobbies and and uh, recreating outside of work and and family? Um, really likes uh, just being outdoors. Again, I'm from Montana. Um, I love going skiing. If I could ski two or three times a year, I'd consider that a success. Um, just really like being outdoors and j- mostly just just taking it all in. I, again, dovetailing in what I do now, I really like the fact that I'm not tied down behind a desk, that I get to be outside all day. Um, during the summer months, obviously can't keep going back to the West. Um, I love fishing. I think I could fish every single hour of the weekend if I could. If if it wasn't for my wife saying, who's going to help me raise these kids, I would be outside <laughs> with a fishing pole every single minute I could. Um, again, if uh, you look at my name, it's Campworth with a K, a very old-fashioned German name. Um, we still get together as a clan, me and all my cousins. Uh, we're originally from the St. Rose Campworth, uh, for the folks uh, listening in that area. Um, we still like to uh, cut and butcher our own meat and make our own sausage. So that's the one thing we still do at a traditional basis is get all the the men together, the Let's see. My dad is second generation uh, off the boat uh, German. So, yeah, uh, we just still like to get together and do something that just binds us to the past. Our great, 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 great grandfather uh, was a was a farmer and also a hog farmer. And my grandpa was a dairyman. So we just have always been around agriculture, meat and just making sure that we're providing the best possible food for our families that isn't something that's going to be packaged processed that you don't know where it comes from because i can just tell you on a personal note that i can guarantee that my girls growing up will definitely know how food is created made and put on shelves no that's that that's that's excellent i think that's a good place to uh i guess for me to uh submit my final question your honor brian what what didn't we have a chance to visit with mike about here today I think you you covered it well. The question that I was going to ask Mike that you already covered was with his unique background. I've been fortunate to work with a handful of folks like Mike that don't necessarily come from that traditional ag background that you think about. And uh, I appreciate the way Mike goes about doing his job, just as he has described to us. Uh, that is something that I think puts him in a bit of a unique spot because he has an approach that not everybody has that doesn't make it good or bad compared to the others. But, but I certainly appreciate Mike and some of the other folks that have what might be considered non-traditional backgrounds uh, Mm -hmm. for our business. And and so I, I appreciate that, Mike. I, the only other question, because I'm an airplane nerd and I'm just curious about this was when you were at, um, luke air force base did they have the f-35s when you were there or was that after you had left luke oh that's a tough one because right when i was doing all my out processing we had the first squadron of trainer f-35s that started putting their wheels on the ground so as the f-16s were uh finally going away they were slowly phasing in the f-35 and instead of hearing that rattly boom of an f-16 and you're 
dorm shaking everything up as you're trying to sleep off third shift. Got to hear like a, a wildcat call that the F-35 makes. So it's a whole different noise that you have to learn to sleep through. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Okay. Airplane nerd done. Sorry, Carl. No, I can talk about planes all day long. And just like Horn, I like to joke with a lot of my, uh, the folks that helped me out with impact plots, uh, that growing up, I never thought I could rattle off about corn and soybeans for more than eight hours at a time. Cause my wife has a rule for me while we're driving to go see our family, uh, which is a two hour drive from Champaign to Greenville. She has a rule. I only get to make three ad comments the entire time because I will just <laughs> talk nonstop about the things that I'm seeing. And the same thing can be going for uh, planes as well. No, that, that's too funny. Well, Mike, we'll have to uh, we'll have to indulge more in our um, airplane and sausage making uh, discussions at a later date. Uh, Should have got there earlier today, uh, but really enjoyed the, uh, the learning more about. Uh, who Michael Campworth is and how he arrived being the project agronomist for Northwest Indiana and uh, adjoining county. So, Mike, thank you very much for the time and sharing with us a little bit about your story. Nope, Brian Carl, thanks for having me. I'm glad I can share a little bit about my uh, history and what I bring to Northwest Indiana. Very good. Well, we will uh, we'll leave it there. So, folks on the other ends of these microphones, uh, stay tuned for the next edition of our. Uh, uh, get to know your Pioneer Agronomist series as we continue to uh, roll these out. Uh, we're, we're ourselves enjoying getting to learn more about our colleagues that we have in over uh, a beer or two after a meeting uh, or in the field as we're evaluating, uh, you know, the latest and greatest Pioneer products that are arriving to your farm. But uh, hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. And we look forward to you uh, catching back up with us on the next edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.